We're in Zephaniah. We're in a season where we're walking through Reclaim, the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And I want to read you Zephaniah 2, 3 from the message. Now, let me tell you something. One of the things that is just kind of a, a real frustration point for me is that the message has a reputation of being shallow. That is just self-righteous pastors trying to posture themselves. Because I will tell you, Eugene Peterson is the smartest guy. To, he was. He's passed away. Uh, he's smarter than anybody in this room. I promise you that. It is like when armchair quarterbacks watch football games at home critiquing an NFL quarterback. It's like the, you could never do that in your entire life. You're going to sit there and critique him. Like Eugene Peterson translated the entire Bible okay, Uh, and did most of it by candlelight in his basement in communion with God, right? I've read his biography, Burning in My Bones, great book to read if you want to read it. He he told this, I'll just, we're going to have some fun here with Eugene Peterson because I'm such a big fan. Uh, This is a guy who Bono got a hold of his writing and Bono reached out to Eugene Peterson and said, hey, you two is going on tour, we need a tour chaplain, we're going to do 300 stops, we would get you your own bus and just have you lead us in devotion and lead us in prayer before every time we go out on stage. And Eugene Peterson told Bono, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm busy translating the Bible. Right? Like, that is submission to God. Like, that's a man that I'm in on following, right? Ah, no, Bono, I'm, I'm a little busy right now. You two will be fine. Uh, I'm translating the Bible. So, um, Anyway, wild tangent, but I love the message because I love the man behind the message who is a man of deep devotion to God. Zephaniah 2, verse 3, in the message it says, Seek God, all you quietly disciplined people who live by God's justice. Seek God's right ways. Seek a quiet and disciplined life. Perhaps you'll be hidden on the day of God's anger. Warren Buffett, who is widely considered one of the greatest investors of all time. Uh, I'm a big fan of people who are great, the world's greatest at anything that they do. I don't care the field. I love to read about them and learn how they think and how they approach things. And he's the king of value investing. And he has like seven rules that have been published over and over and over. And he's sent out to his partners and everything else. Here are five of them that I thought were really interesting. These are Warren Buffett's rules for investing. Number one, He says, don't lose money. Number two is don't forget rule number one. And then he goes on to say, if you buy things cheaper than what they're worth, and you buy a group of them, and you hold them over time, you don't lose money. Number three, he says, don't hold a stock for 10 minutes unless you're willing to hold it for 10 years. Again, he's a a long-term value investing guy. Number four, he says, always buy below intrinsic value. He said, because over time, if you buy below intrinsic value, you will always make money. He's he's an overtime guy. He says, the questions you should ask yourself is, how much are you going to get? When are you going to be getting it? And how sure are you? Number five, he says, I would rather buy wonderful businesses at a fair price rather than a fair business at a wonderful price, the, the author of this particular article and a number of others on Warren Buffett goes on to say his investing strategy is one of the simplest in the world. It is buy strong companies at a good price and hold them forever. 
That's it. That's his entire strategy. In fact, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos met with Warren Buffett, and while he was interviewing him, he asked Warren Buffett this. He said, you're the second richest guy in the world next to him. That's pretty arrogant, right? Well, you're the second richest. (laughs) Happened to be the first sitting right here, right? So Bezos asked Warren Buffett, you're the second richest guy in the world. Your investing thesis is so simple, why don't more people just copy you? Here's what Buffett said, because nobody wants to get rich slow. He goes on to say, the investor that scares him the most is the one who is financially sound, but psychologically weak. He goes on to say, they have a lot to lose, and they usually do, because they can't think long term. When we talk about Zephaniah, Zephaniah is prophesying to the nation of Israel and he's prophesying to them during a time where they just can't think long term. If we were to take Buffett's principle and apply it to the nation of Israel during the book of Zephaniah, he's saying you are spiritually sound and psychologically weak. You just can't think long term. Zephaniah is prophesying during a 30-year run of King Josiah. And Josiah, we talked about last week, was leading these reforms of Israel, right? He would tear down the, the altars to the foreign gods. He would evacuate the temple filled with prostitutes. And then he'd turn back around. Everybody'd be worshiping. And then he'd catch them running back into the temple of prostitutes again. So he'd go back over here and he'd crush these neighboring armies that were leading people astray. He'd come back and he'd find them re building altars to a foreign god again. And it was this cycle over and over and over where they would get really excited spiritually and then they were so psychologically weak or so mentally they could not focus on the long-term gain of their faith. They would experience a little bit of peace, a little bit of prosperity, and run wild again. Here's a unique thing about, about Zephaniah. Zephaniah, the, Zephaniah 1 verse 1 tells you he is the grandson of King Hezekiah. So he was was a person who was in line to become king. He was the great-grandson of King Hezekiah, yet by the time he got to the place of being king of his nation, it was already destroyed. So everything had been messed up, and he's coming from a place of prominence. Usually the prophets that we've studied have been from a foreign land or the outskirts of a town or the, the young poor farmer boy comes up and challenges the establishment, right? No, not with Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the king's great-grandson, and he's coming to them and he is saying, here is your problem. You cannot see anything outside of 25 minutes in front of you. You get so excited spiritually and then Monday, you're back to scrolling things on the internet you know you shouldn't be doing. You get so wound up at Bible study and then you go back home and you treat your family like garbage. You, you have this spiritual excitement, and then it just fades away right into the near future. And he comes to them, and he is challenging them on that, and he lists for them. And this one fits perfectly inside of our outline that we've been going. You have the case against judgment, the call to repentance, and the covenant of restoration. God says, here is your judgment. And Zephaniah says, here's the judgment against you. Here is your call to repentance. This is what you do to change these things. And now here is the covenant of restoration. Here's what I'll do 
in light of that, all right? So let's roll through without further ado, jumping into Zephaniah. He starts off with judgment and he gives them three things to judge them on. It is idolatry, pride, and money. He said, here is what's keeping you from the long-term win spiritually. Idolatry, pride, and money. These three things are clouding your judgment so much that the moment things start to go good, you bail and follow false idols. You bail and follow your own pride. You bail and chase after the dollar, and you do it over and over and over. Here, li- listen to Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1, 4 through 6. This is idolatry. He says, I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to all the idolatrous priests so that even the memory of them will disappear. For they go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun, moon, and stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Molech too. And I will destroy those who used to worship me but no longer do. They no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my Blessings. Number one, the call, the case for judgment is you're falling idols. You are idolizing things that aren't me. You're giving your worship to things that aren't me. You're no longer checking in with me. You're no longer looking for me for guidance. You're getting your guidance from Instagram. You're getting your guidance from Google. You're getting your guidance from your friends. You're getting your guidance from comments. You're getting your guidance from people. You're getting your guidance from opinions. You're not checking in with me and living the way that I'm calling you to live. So the first one is idolatry. The second one is pride. Zephaniah 1, 12 through 13, he continues on, and it says, I will search with lanterns in Jerusalem's darkest corners to punish those who sit complacent in their sins. They think the Lord will do nothing to them. They have so much pride that they're doing whatever they want, and they're thinking, God's not going to do anything to me. They think God won't do anything to them, either good or bad. So their property will be plundered. Their homes will be ransacked. They will build new homes but never live in them. They will plant vineyards but never drink wine from them. The third one is money. Zephaniah 1, 18, the Lord comes to them and he says, Your silver and gold will not save you on the the day of the Lord's anger. For the whole land will be devoured by fire and his jealousy. He will make a terrifying end of all the people on earth. This is reminiscent of Habakkuk, who also, remember last week, prophesied during the exact same time to a little bit different of an audience. And he says, What sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonestly. You believe your wealth will buy you security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of of danger. Ezekiel was a major prophet, and he also prophesied during the time of King Josiah. And here's what Ezekiel had to say, Ezekiel 7, 19. They they will throw their money in the streets, tossing it out like worthless trash. Their silver and gold won't save them on that day of the Lord's anger. Isn't it ironic? Two miners and one major prophet, all crushing the same thing. Your money won't save you. It will neither satisfy nor feed them, for their greed can only trip them up. Wow. Idolatry, pride, and money. You know, when Ezra was in the NICU, he spent the first five days of his life, he was downtown in downtown Houston. And when we got down there, 
it was on like a Wednesday. Uh, when we got to Friday, we were, we were having to do night-by-night hotels, and all of a sudden, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, hotels were sold out like crazy. Like, you could not find anything. Airbnb, hotel, nothing. So I'm sitting in the NICU, and I'm like, man, what is going on? And they were like, oh my goodness, it's the Taylor Swift concert. And I'm like, what? Like, oh yeah, Taylor Swift, one of her largest U.S. concerts is in downtown Houston at NRG this weekend. So we go back, and I'm, I'm walking back and forth, right, because I rode downtown in an ambulance, didn't have a car. As I'm walking back, I'm like, something smells funny. Like, this, there's, there's a change in the atmosphere around here, right? I walk into the hotel lobby, and there are people in like, costumes and they've got masks on and they've got these gowns on and they've got these lyrics written all over their body and there's glitter everywhere and there's a DJ and he's playing Taylor Swift and it's just, I was like, this is the lobby of hell. This is what I imagine, like when you're waiting to get in, this is what the lobby would be like, right? Of all of these. So I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm experiencing, I'm like, what on earth is going on? And, and this was like noon, right? This wasn't even at night. So I go up to the room, get a little rest, eat a little food. I'd been in the NICU all night, wake up in the afternoon, get ready to come back down. And as I get on the elevator, I'm not kidding. First, it is packed. I mean, it's so full of everyone. I'm not just talking about teens. I'm th- these Swifties come in all shapes and sizes, right? Like this is everybody. And they're, they're in all of these gowns and out. There was, there was glitter so thick on the elevator floor that I could write my name in it, right? And I'm like, what is happening? And so I asked one of them, I was like, well, what, what do you think is going on? They're like, oh, we waited seven hours since 8 a.m. this morning for the merch table to open. And there was like 50 people in front of us. And we bought a hundred dollar hoodie and I check it and I'm just like what like what in the and then we get down and we walk out and there are like miles long of people dressed in all these costumes lyrics written all over their bodies they have these face paints on these masks all of this stuff and they're singing out all of these lyrics every day and I had this moment where I said to myself I wonder what Jesus thinks of all this I, now look, I'm a closet Swifty. I think she writes, some of her lyrics are insane, right? Like super, super talented. That's not what I'm talking about. And, and to clarify this, we have some friends who were, were major Taylor Swift fans, like big time Taylor Swift fans, who were there at the concert and called us while we were down there and said, hey, we have a hotel room tonight right next to NRG and we want to give it to you because uh, we know you guys are in the NICU. I'm not talking about those people, right? I mean, be a fan. You want to be a fan? You want to be a celebrate? You want to celebrate all that? That's great. I'm talking about a level of worship that I have never seen inside of the church for something that does not have any eternal value. Like, mind-blowing to me. And, and I'm not, listen, I'm not crushing on, I'm not crushing on Texans fans. They, they're a little less mild, but, you know, same, same method, different hat, right? But I just, it's, it's to me, it is like, what on earth has got to you right here where you would spend thousands and thousands of dollars that you would cover your body in merely human words and stand outside of an arena for hours and get a hotel so you don't have to make the drive and spend 
thousands of dollars on tickets so that you can sing along to a song that is wildly creatively written and has no eternal value to your soul. Take a zillion pictures of it, post it everywhere, and then can't wake up in the morning to worship Jesus. That's the challenge. The challenge is not everything that happened before. You want to stay up till midnight, sing Taylor Swift songs, right all over you, great. Do it, awesome. But don't skip Jesus for Taylor Swift, right? Don't skip Jesus for the Texans. Don't skip Jesus. This is what was happening within the nation of Israel, is they would profess this incredible excitement for Jesus, and then the next thing, well, for God, Jesus hadn't come yet. They would, they would profess this incredible temple excitement for the worship of God, and then they'd be sleeping with temple prostitutes. And Josiah is running around. Hezekiah is running around. Zephaniah is running around. Habakkuk is running around, and they're all saying the same thing. What are you doing? Like, just take one moment, look in the mirror at yourself, and say out loud what you're doing. I care more about a concert and a creatively written song than worshiping Jesus. Like, just say it out loud. Just look, look, at, look at what. And so then God says, I'm going to crush you for it. I can't reward this behavior. Like, this is not God being rude. This is me giving you exactly what you want. If what you want is idol worship, if what you want is altars to foreign gods, if what you want is to live in the cesspool of your own rebellion, cheering, excited, and, and wild about it, and then the next thing, empty and wondering what will satisfy your soul, if that's what you want, you can have it. That's the challenge. Idolatry is anything that we give more worship to than our Lord. That's what idolatry is, right? Be a fan of whatever you want. Cheer on whatever you want. Just make sure it's not better than Jesus. Just make sure you're not, and I'm not even talking about, like, there are some pastors, like, oh, we should, you know, not have an NFL season at noon because it takes away from Jesus. Look, you know, if you have Texans tickets, go. If you have Cowboys tickets, sell them. Like, whatever, it, whatever you got, Go, do it, be a fan. Here's what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. If you disappear from, from encountering Jesus from the first weekend of September to the second weekend of February, and you take 17 weeks off because every Sunday you're trying to catch the pregame, and every Sunday you got the dip and the brisket and the ribs and everything going, and you just, you just take time off spiritually because your football season's in, and you know what football season means in our house, right? That's what I'm talking about. That is spiritually sound, psychologically weak. That is super excited about Jesus, except for when you have the opportunity to worship and idolize something else. So hear me. Be a fan of whatever you want. Just make sure you're a bigger fan of Jesus than you are whatever you want. Right? That's it. That's all he's saying. That's literally all he's saying. Is if you would just quit the idolatry, if you would just quit the pride, if you would just quit chasing the dollar and putting all of these things as so much more important than God, you would live in the land of blessing. You would thrive. You would experience everything that I have for you. In fact, that's what he rolls into when he calls them to repentance. In Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3, here's what he says. Gather together, yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now. 
before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins? Here he gives you the answer. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you and protect you from his anger on the day of destruction. Again, in Zephaniah 3.12, he says, Those who are left will be the lowly and the humble, for it is they who trust in the Lord, in the name of the Lord. How do you break idolatry? How do you break pride? How do you break the love of money? He just gave it to them. He said, listen, your problem is idolatry. Your problem is pride. Your problem is money. How do you break all of those things? Idolatry is worshiping what I can make. Humility is worshiping the maker. Humility is a a submission of heart. So how do you break idolatry? Habakkuk 2.18, he gives it to us. He says, what good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? He's saying, what good is it worshiping what you can make? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. Mark Batterson says, the opposite of idolatry is humility. The opposite of idolatry is saying, I can't make it, I can't craft it, I can't do it, therefore I will submit to the one who can. How do you break pride? James 4, 6 says, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How do you break the love of money? He goes into it again, Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. John Calvin famously said, the heart is a factory for idolatry. The human heart is a factory for idolatry. All of these things, idolatry, pride, the love of money, they all birth from a brokenness within our hearts. There is a brokenness that we haven't healed. There is a brokenness that we haven't resolved. And, And here is the challenging thing. I talk to people about this all the time. The worst advice you can ever give somebody or receive in your life is follow your heart. That's horrible advice. The heart says the Bible says the heart is wicked above all things. Like your heart can lie to you. Do you know I have sat with men who have made the stupidest decisions in their life in the name of following their heart? I'm going to implode my marriage, destroy my relationship with my kids humiliate my family and bring shame upon myself simply because my heart is telling me I've fallen in love with this girl at the office that's 15 years younger than me. Bro, your heart's lying to you. Your heart is lying to you. Your heart is not more important than his word. So you don't live by your heart. You tell your heart how to feel. You tell your, yeah, you shut up. You, you shut up, zip your pants, and run because you're unfaithful, you're lying to me, you're deceiving me right now, and God has called me to flee from sexual temptation. He's called me to find my satisfaction in him and not in someone who shows me attention when I'm stressed out at work. We don't follow our heart. We tell our heart how to feel. 
We direct our heart. We lead our heart. We guide our heart. What does Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not trust in your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lord, I trust in you with all of my heart. I do not trust my own heart. I trust you to guide my heart, to inform my heart, and to tell me how to feel. Humility is a submission of the heart whether you want to or not. That's what humility is. Humility is saying, I really want to do this, but Jesus doesn't want me to do this, so I'm humble enough to submit my heart to Jesus. Humility is saying, I really don't want to do this, but Jesus wants me to do this, so I'm humble enough to submit my heart to Jesus and do what I don't want to do. Humility is a submission of the heart. Proverbs 22.4 gives us a beautiful definition of humility. It says, humility, Solomon, the wisest man to walk the face of the planet, says true humility, or true humility and fear of the Lord. I'm wrong here. New International. Okay, yes. Humility is the fear of the Lord. That's a different translation. Same, same verbiage. Humility is a fear of the Lord. Humility is when we fear something more than our own feelings. Humility is a submission of our heart to fear God more than the way that I feel, the things that I want, or the longings or desires that I have. We had a, um, a parent psychologist give us parenting advice for spanking our children, right? And I mean, look, I'm not for spanking. All, all kids don't respond to spanking the same way. I got two that do and two that don't, right? Spare the rod, you spoil the child. I'm a Proverbs parent, right? But I mean, two of my kids, they don't respond to spanking at all, so we don't spank them. Two of them, it, it does the job, right? So um, we have this, and this is our first child. We have our first child, and this, this parenting psychologist is talking to us, and she says, whatever you do, um, don't spank your children with your hands. And this was actually really good advice. She's like, you don't want your kids growing up thinking your hand is a weapon, right? You know, hey, I love you. <laughs> you know, like, no, like, you don't want it. So, so identify an object that will be the spanking object and make it clear that's what you have, okay? So um, anyway, we get that advice, and we're first-time parents. We're like, we'll never spank our children, right? That changes quick, by the way. The only people that say that are ones who aren't parents, right? So we're, we're there, and Canaan, there's this moment where Canaan starts finally, why is it always Canaan? Listen, he's a good kid. He's a great kid. He's the testy one, though. He's, the, he's, he's got a boldness and a leadership about him that's going to change the world, right? Either small dictator of a country or pastor, one of the two. And so Canaan is, he's, 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 he's chirping at his mom, and she looks at him, and she says, if you talk back to me again, I'm going to give you a spanking. And he says, no, you won't. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm like, oh, <laughs> get the phone out, start recording, right? Anna walks over and says, yes, I will. Turn around. He turns around and she goes, I'm not This kid turned around like he was Nate Diaz at a face-off, right? He turns around to his mom and he starts looking at her like this, like this. Like, you, you can't hurt me. I'm like, what is he doing his mama grew up on streets that were numbers, not names. Like, if you know, you know on there. I'm like, you don't, you don't test mom. She, Anna says to me, where, where is that wooden spoon? Where is that wooden spoon? She goes and she gets that wooden spoon and our little five-year-old tough guy standing there. He's like, what, what? She walks over with this wooden spoon. And she goes, turn around. You're getting another spanking. He goes, oh. You, you know how, like, Ken Griffey had one of the most beautiful swings in baseball? You know, just that shh. 
right? Just the clean, fail swoop, rotate the hips, backside comes in, you roll the hands and get that pop, right? And I mean, she, it was just like, and he goes, and I'm over there like, I told you so. I knew, I can't believe you did that, right? And I, listen, it wasn't abusive. It wasn't out of control. It wasn't in anger. He, he asked for every second of it, and she was like, I will give you what you're asking for, right? She's like, I can't believe you did that. So now, guess what happens? When things escalate to a level with him where he's arguing with us or talking back, all we have to say is, I'm going to get the spoon, no, 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 no. Mom, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'll never do that again. I promise you I'm going to help you all day. I'll do the dishes, take out the trash, and every chore that you want me to do. He's, he is, ask him about the spoon. No, don't ask him. Like, he'll be embarrassed. Don't do that, right? But there is in our home, we have, I'm going to get the spanking spoon. And that turns a fear that elicits a response of obedience, Right? I'm not saying God needs a spanking spoon with all of us, but I am saying God needs a spanking spoon with all of us. Like, there should be something in you when you start flirting with sin that scares you. There should be something in you that when you start doing what you know you should not be doing, you have the conviction in your heart, you have, it's in your mind, you know, you're, you're, you start sweating, you get nervous, your words are messing up, and you know you are about to step into the center of something you know you should not be doing. There should be a fear that comes over to you. That is humility. Humility is the fear of the Lord, is saying, I could break fellowship with God if I do this. I could break intimacy with God if I do this. I could lose the hand of God on my life if I do this. I could lose the favor of God if I do this. Quick tip, and I'm just on rabbit trails now, but I have something, and I've shared this with a group of men when we had a, a marriage conference, and I have something that, I don't know, you call it, I call it an if I blow it list. And it's a list, and I can't read it in public or else I just start crying about it, but it's a list of if I blow it. And on that list, it says, if I do something terrible, stupid, or sinful, here's what will happen. I'll lose my wife. I'll lose my children. I'll embarrass our church. I'll break the heart of my God. I'll break the heart of people who trusted me. I'll embarrass my family. I'll embarrass my friends. I probably won't have any friends. I'll probably lose our home. I'll lose my job. I'll lose my income. I'll have to do something else. I'll have to find another thing to do when I feel called to ministry. And, and here's what that does. I, I have it. I add to it. I change it. I read it two to three times a year. And every time it brings me to a level of humility. It brings me to a level of submission. It brings me to a level of fear before God that just says, Lord, keep my hands pure, keep my mind pure, keep my eyes pure, keep my words pure. Let these feet only go places that honor you. Let this whole body be a living sacrifice to you. That's what Israel is missing. They're missing the fear. They're missing the humility. They're chasing idols. They're prideful. They're chasing money. Find yourself in this narrative, right? Remember, at the very beginning, the first message, I told you that the challenge that we always do with Scripture is we read ourselves as God and not as the people. We are not God and we are not the prophet in this. We are the children of Israel. 
We are the ones whose hearts will run to idolatry and not even know it. We are the ones who will buff up in pride and not even recognize it. We are the ones who will chase after money and not even recognize it. And what we're missing is that fear, that humility that says, I'm not breaking fellowship with God over this. I'm not breaking fellowship with the Spirit over this. I'm not messing. I fear God too much. That's how you break this. That's the call to repentance, if you will. He comes to the nation of Israel, and he says, you need humility. Humility is what you need, and then here's where he finishes. And, and I think this is really good. So Anne and I were talking while we were in Galveston, and she said, and this is so rightfully so, um, she said, I, I struggle sometimes with the God of the Old Testament. He's, he is so strong, and he, he seems kind of harsh sometimes, which is super valid. That's a great question. That's a great curiosity to explore. When you talk about like healthy deconstruction, and I, I don't even know, it's a real buzzword now, but that's a great question to ask. Man, is the God of the Old Testament really that harsh, that strong? I'll tell you what really did something for me. I was in class with a messianic rabbi named Yves Michel. And he is a, he leads a Jewish congregation that is messianic, completed Jew, whatever you want to call it. He's a, he is a Jew who believes in Jesus is how he would phrase it. And their congregation, they meet on Saturdays and they adhere every festival. They do every Jewish tradi tradition and ritual and everything else from Shabbat and everything. And then they just worship Jesus, right? So he is, he's a beautiful Jewish man. And he said something to me one time because we were talking along this subject and I, I told him, I, I was just like, man, um, how, do, how do Jews experience the God of the Old Testament? And he said, that's the biggest problem with Gentiles and Jews. He said, Gentiles see the God of the Old Testament as harsh. Jews see him as the most gracious, kind, and loving God on the face of the planet. And he said, here's why. Because Gentiles don't understand it, but us Jews know the punishment we deserved. He said, us Jews, like, if you are a Jew and you read it as a Jew, you read the Old Testament and the rebellion, constant rebellion of Israel, you're reading it saying to yourselves, man, we don't deserve God's restoration. We don't deserve, after time and time and time again, from splitting a sea to leading us out of Egypt to taking us to the promised land to giving us manna to giving us water to letting us build a temple and then letting us rebuild our temple and leading us out of captivity and protecting us over and over. He's saying, we, we don't deserve it. God is gracious and God is merciful. And I hope you see this in the book of Zephaniah. Look at how he wraps this up, okay? Because because chapter one, judgment, chapter, chapter two, call to repentance, chapter three, look at this restoration. Starts Zephaniah 2, verse 7. The remnant of the tribe of Judah will pasture there. They will rest at night in the abandoned houses of Eshkelon, and for the Lord their God will visit his people in kindness and restore their prosperity again. Zephaniah 3, 8 through 11 says, Therefore be patient, says the Lord. Soon I will stand and accuse these evil nations, for I have decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury on them. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. Then, and here's why, why is God casting judgment? This is the reason why. Verse 9, then I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. It's not in anger, it's in purity. 
It's not in anger, it's in purity. What is his motivation? Not to crush them to satisfy his anger, but to crush them to satisfy a purity so that they can worship him again. So he says, therefore I will purify the speech of the people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. My scattered people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia will come to present their offerings. On that day, you will no longer need to be ashamed. Imagine hearing that. For you will no longer be rebels against me. I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. There will be no more haughtiness on my holy mountain. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20, he finishes, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among among you. At last your troubles will be over and you will never again fear disaster. We'll keep going. Verse 16. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, cheer up Zion, don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. You will be disgraced no more. And I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away, I will give glory and fame to my former exiles, wherever they, wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction, and all the nations of the earth as I restore your fortunes before their very eyes. I, the Lord, have spoken." Maybe this is the best way to summarize Zephaniah coming before the children of Israel over a 30-year period, begging them to think long-term. He is saying, increase your value of God. Increase your value of Him. If you have a cheap God, you give Him cheap worship. If you have a cheap God, you give Him a cheap loyalty. If you have a valuable God, you give Him valuable worship. You give Him valuable submission. You lay your heart before Him. When I was a kid, uh, one of the, the coolest things that you could have was Oakley's. Oakley's, right? <laughs> College, you don't even know what Oakley's are. They're pit vipers, right? Like, no. Oakleys, those were the, the, I remember, and so I, I was poor growing up, didn't have any money. My, my friends and I found this, this website where you could order fake ones, and they said O-key across them, right? They just left out the L, but we, we called them Folkleys, right? So I had these Folkleys that I would wear, and I loved my Folkleys, and I'd tear them up, and I'd lose them, and we'd pay $10 again and get another pair of Folkleys, and all this. And then for my birthday, my family bought me a new pair of real Oakleys. Like they were white and they had black trim on them. And you know how they came in the little, the little like silk bag? You know, I kept them in that silk bag. I protected them with my life. I was like, no, I, I ain't playing baseball on my Oakleys, man. Like I got to put them up, put them in the bag and I'll get my Folkleys for that, right? But I, I loved these sunglasses and I cared for them because they were the real ones, right? And they cost a whole lot more. So I remember I was with my friend. His dad had a sea and he was pulling us around the lake on this tube. And I was standing on the back of the sea 
and I dove off, and I, it's almost like I can still feel it. I remember feeling my real Oakleys ripped from my face as I hit the water, and I felt them, and I was like trying to find them underwater. I spent two hours diving around that lake looking for my Oakleys, reaching down in that mud and trying to find it, and couldn't find them, and I was sick and upset for a week that I lost the real things. Why? Because my value on them was much higher than the fake ones. Maybe it comes down to this. How much do you value your relationship with God? Do you value it enough to protect it and to keep it in covenant and to look after it and to walk humbly and to resist the things that are pulling at your heart and to care about it, to nurture it on Monday and to nurture it on Tuesday and to spend time with him on Wednesday and to tell people about him on Thursday and to walk in fellowship with him on Friday and to lead your family in Sabbath on a Saturday and then to show up to worship on a Sunday? Or is it, I did my Sunday morning deal now I'm off to real life. Like, what do you, how do you value him? That's what Zephaniah is coming to say. We have more than a once a week temple God. We have more than a once a week temple relationship. Don't get excited and then fall apart long term, but begin to value your relationship with God so much so that you live in a humility submitted to him so that you can be his people to the rest of the world. That's the book of Zephaniah.